want to give you a little bit of an introduction by uh, way of some notes that I have. And also, I want to tell you a little brief story. So hopefully, these things will be of benefit to you. Let me tell you the sad story first. First of all, there's good news and there's bad news. And the good news is Jesus is coming soon. And the bad news is between now and then there's going to be some problems, some difficulties. Yours truly and other people like me might be put in prison, and I'll show you why tonight. You're going to see some amazing things. And I've never thought of myself as a chauvinist or a bigot, but people are being called bigots now because they want to hold up God's word. Are you guys aware of that? I'll show it to you in a few minutes. But I'm going to give you a story to help you understand this situation. A number of years ago, our family lived in Jackson, Mississippi, when our children were small. And I was the pastor there. Very early one Monday morning, I received a phone call from a lady who was a nurse. And she was calling me from the hospital. She called me at 5 o'clock in the morning. Now, Kathy and I are early risers, but we usually get up at 5.30, not 5. Uh, but she had wanted to call since 3 o'clock, but she waited in deference to my probably being asleep. And so she said that there had been a very bad accident on Interstate 55 just north of Jackson, and she wanted me to come and counsel with the grieving family. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. A family of five people had been returning home, apparently, from a vacation on the Gulf Coast and uh, had probably stayed longer than they should have because it was 3 o'clock in the morning they were traveling just north of Jackson, Mississippi. Some of you, like our family, have traveled late at night, and you remember that you roll down the windows and you sing and you tell jokes and your wife tries to keep you awake and all that stuff, and that's what they were doing, apparently. The three children, one in the second seat and two in the back seat, there were five of them in the car, doing great until something unusual happened. A man traveling southbound had stopped for a break, either to get fuel or to take a nap, I don't know whether alcohol was involved or not, but when he started up again, he headed south on the northbound lanes. And so in just a few minutes, the car with five people and this man in the pickup truck by himself had a head-on collision at interstate speeds. Four people were killed instantly. The mother and the father, the little brother, and the man in the other car. And the two children that survived had been knocked unconscious with serious injuries, but they were beginning to wake up. And so they wanted me to tell them that the accident had proved fatal for their mother and their father and their little brother. Now, I've thought about this a lot over the years. It happened many years ago, almost 40 years ago. I still remember it. And the reason it's so significant is what could have been done to prevent that accident. Well, you know, the guy went down the wrong way and he passed the wrong way signs and all of that. The real interesting part about it, when you think about it, is suppose I had been driving on the southbound side where I should be and I saw this guy on the other side going the wrong way. Maybe I could honk my horn or blink my lights or do something. And the guy, if he saw me, would have said, what's wrong with that crazy guy? Is he on something? But then maybe he would have thought, I'm going the wrong way. I think I should turn around right away and get off this road. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. If you think somebody's going the wrong way and you're certain about it, is it an act of bigotry or self-righteousness to try to tell them to go the right way? Do you get the point? So we're going to talk about the papacy some tonight. And I am not an anti-Catholic bigot. I have many Catholic friends. I have relatives who are Catholics. Many of them will be going to heaven, as you well know. But the system is what we're going to talk about tonight, and that's what's so significant about what's happening here. So I'm going to talk to you about history and prophecy and current events as a foundation for this presentation, first of all. And I believe that as Bible-believing Christians, we need to be aware of what's happening and of their great significance. Now I'm going to start with a little picture here of uh, the Mayflower. Many of you know something about the pilgrims, but I'm going to tell you the real story tonight in about two minutes. The real story is England had separated from the Roman Catholic Church around 1532 in the days of Henry VIII, and the split was primarily over the authority of the Pope and not so much of doctrinal issues. In fact, Henry himself became head of the Church of England 
as you know, and anybody that disagreed with him got their heads chopped off. You understand guillotine? They were executed, 200 people at one time, at one point. But there was a group of people in England at that time who were called separatists or saints and later called pilgrims. These people did not want to pledge allegiance to the Church of England, which they believed was almost as corrupt and idolatrous as the Roman Church. So in 1608, this group of pilgrims left England and went over to Holland and seeking religious freedom. They were there for about 12 years when they heard about the New World. Now what I'm going to tell you next is really quite an incredible journey. The pilgrims hired a merchant ship called the Speedwell and that was going to take them to England where they were going to meet up with another ship called the Mayflower and the two would sail across the Atlantic together. The voyage from Holland to England which started out on July 22, keep these dates in mind, of 1620, the Speedwell developed serious leaks just going across the English Channel and had to be repaired in England. On August 21, the two ships set sail for America, and after sailing, listen carefully now, this is not a big cruise ship, it's little sailboats, 300 miles off the coast of England. The Speedwell again developed such serious leakage problems they had to turn back 300 miles by sailing again back to England. And the pilgrims had already spent nearly six weeks on board the Speedwell, but it was decided to transfer all the people, which were the boatload of pilgrims, with the other people and all the cattle and all the other stuff. And the Mayflower was not a passenger ship. There were 102 people on board and a crew of about 30 people. The ship was only 90 feet long. Now, if you can imagine what I'm going to tell you next, modern cruise ships are typically 12 times that long. Finally, on September 6th, the heavily loaded Mayflower left England, but the long delay in dealing with the Speedwell's issues meant that the Mayflower must now cross the North Atlantic at the height of the stormy season. So this picture is actually an artist's drawing of a boat like the Mayflower, but as you can see, that little boat, when the swells come up, sometimes it would actually disappear. Quite incredible. The North Atlantic was at the height of its stormy season, resulting in a rough, dangerous, and uncomfortable passage. And it, this is another picture, I want to show you this one, uh, of the same little boat. And the interesting part about it was that it was a square-rigged sailboat, and with the North Atlantic storms, they actually got in such storms, they had to take the sails clear down so the ship would not turn over sideways. So for days, they would just drift at sea. Many of you know that you can fly from London to Washington, D.C. in six hours. It took them 66 days to cross the North Atlantic, 66 days. Early on in the voyage, their fruit and vegetable supply rotted. With not enough nutrients in their diet, many of the passengers experienced bleeding gums, rotten teeth, stinking breath that is associated with scurvy, and their water became so polluted that uh, their liquid was supplied by kegs of beer on board by the other passengers. In addition, many of the passengers were horribly seasick and one was swept overboard and was drowned. Now to make matters even worse, there were no toilets on board the Mayflower. And remember, it was not a passenger ship at all. So the people used wooden pots which they emptied overboard. To make matters even worse, there was not enough fresh water so no one got to wash their clothes for two months or themselves. The passengers were forced to leave, wear all their clothes for two straight months. Now it's interesting that it was not until November 9 that they saw land in what is now known as Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And the interesting part about this, when they actually came ashore, most people don't realize this, it was winter in New England with snow already on the ground. It was too cold for building houses, so most of the pilgrims spent the first winter cramped quarters of the Mayflower that was anchored in what we now know as Plymouth Harbor. During the first winter, nearly half of the people died. Only 53 of the 102 survived. It was malnutrition, disease, exposure to cold winter that took the toll. And it is very likely that without the kindness and the aid of Native Americans that none of the colonists would have survived at all. Now I've told you these details to underscore the sacrifice and the religious, uh, the commitment that these people were seeking civil and religious liberty. They were willing to go through all of that for this. Do you see? That's the point. They had been hunted, persecuted, and imprisoned in Europe, and now those that survived were free. Now my second illustration is going to show you this.
This is the Washington Monument. Now, if you go to Washington, D.C. today, the monument is open. Again, remember, it was damaged by an earthquake a few years ago, and it was scaffolding all around it and so on. But it's open now. But you can't walk up it anymore. You have to take an elevator to the top. It's the highest stone masonry structure in the world at 555 feet. This was erected to honor George Washington, the first president of America, but also the civil and religious liberty or freedom of America. And so it was that uh, during the construction period, memorial stones were sent by all 50 states, the Cherokee Nation, many foreign countries, and some companies as well. Now, I'm going to show you some pictures of this so you can see inside the Washington Monument on the inside walls, not on the outside, on the inside walls, there are stones that are in the wall that are memorials. Like here's the Tennessee stone. Remember all 50 states are there, so here's the Tennessee stone. I have a picture also of the Colorado stone and the Cherokee Nation stone. I just thought many of you would be interested in something that you could see and, and understand. So now what I'm gonna tell you is quite interesting. One of the senders of a memorial stone was Pope Pius IX from the Vatican. He sent that in 1853 during the construction of the Washington Monument. A block of marble from the ancient temple of Concord in Rome on behalf of the Holy See, which is the central government of the Roman Catholic Church. But because of the sacrifice of the pilgrims that I just told you about, and those who had laid down their lives in the Revolutionary War to protect freedom, the workers on the monument refused to use the papal stone. Check it out on the internet, it's just all over there. Just look at papal stone or monument stones. With memories of the Inquisition in their mind and the martyrdom of so many innocent people, the workers broke up the papal stone, put it in a boat and took it out in the middle of the Potomac River and dumped it over. It was never used. Now, this was not anti-Catholic bigotry. This was realism that many of these people had experienced firsthand. Do you understand what we're talking about? Very important to understand. By the way, it is interesting that in 1982, during the administration of Ronald Reagan, the Holy Alliance, you know that era, the Vatican sent over a replacement stone, and I presume that it's been installed somewhere in the monument, but I have not been able to find it on the internet. Now, we're gonna go and look at a few things here that I think are significant. One of them is the perspective on Pope Francis and his visit to the United States. I'm going to give you a real quick survey of prophecy in just a moment, but when Benedict was still the Pope, whatever happened to Benedict anyway? Did he die? He actually resigned, which is almost unprecedented, and he still lives in the Vatican. Here's President Obama with the Pope Francis in the Vatican. And this was interesting. The Obamas were, told, were planning to greet Pope Francis at the airport, that is Andrews Air Force Base. This is almost unprecedented because it had never happened before George Bush went and met the Pope Francis. This is almost unprecedented, typically when people come to Andrews Air Force Base. Many of you are familiar with Washington, D.C. area. I lived there for 21 years, so I can tell you there are three major airports. You have the, George, uh, uh, the, the uh, Reagan National Airport downtown, uh, Dulles Airport, which is many international flights, and the Baltimore-Washington International Airport as well. But if a visiting dignitary comes, he doesn't go to the, any of those three. He goes to Andrews Air Force Base, and they will send their limousines out to pick them up and then take them to the embassy or wherever to freshen up, and the next day, if at all, they come and see the president. But in this particular case, I'll show you what happened. This is from the CBS News. President Obama, the first lady, Michelle Obama, will lead the welcoming committee for Pope Francis when he arrives in Washington for a historic visit later this month. The White House says the Obamas will make the rare trip to Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland, just outside of Washington, on September 22 to formally welcome Francis on his first U.S. visit. So here's a picture. Uh, you can't see it, but Michelle is in the uh, kind of a turquoise dress, and the the president, the first lady, and both of their daughters are just walking up to where the Pope will be coming out. And also standing in the, in the foreground there, I'm just going to turn around and try to point this out. Right here is uh, Vice President Joe Biden and his wife and three daughters. So they, the vice president's family, the president's family, all of them went to visit, greet the Pope. And here is a picture of the Obamas greeting the Pope. Now this had happened before. What I'm going to tell you now is very interesting. 
This has been gradually happening because it happened before, as I showed you with George Bush and Laura Bush meeting Benedict. But what's the most interesting part right here, Ignatian Solidarity Network, which is a, a Jesuit website posted on September 6. In September 24, 2015, Pope Francis will address the joint session of Congress in a historic event bringing together faith and politics. Please understand this has never, ever happened before. This is what we call unprecedented event, bringing church and state together. The greatness of America is that we keep those two separate. Do you understand? We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. And the, the, the website also pointed out, I'm going to bring it back up here, that of the U.S. Congress, the 114th Congress, 159 of them are Jesuit school alumni, and 20% of Americans identify themselves as Catholic. That's 71 million people. 30% of the people who serve in Congress are Roman Catholic. So it's kind of interesting. I'll show you more of this. But no pope would ever address the joint session of Congress. It's interesting also that starting tomorrow, the pope will be, well, he came today, I believe, late in the day, but he will be tomorrow and Sunday at Philadelphia on the World Meeting of Families. They had 10,000 tickets to Pope Francis in Philadelphia's mass. They were taken in 30 seconds. No person ever in the history of America has had the royal treatment this pope has had. Has some of you been able to watch this on TV? You, you can know what I'm talking about. By the way, it's interesting that today, the president of China and his wife, China is the most populous country on earth, and it's the second largest economy, second only to the United States. It didn't even make the news that he visited with the president today. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? This is amazing. These Pope-mobile rides through Washington and, and Philadelphia and New York City and so on. So we're going to look at the significance. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to open to Daniel 2 because we're going to look at something very amazing. I'm going to give you a Bible study. Hopefully, for most of you, it will be a review of this Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, all in 15 minutes. So this is, we're going to do it with PowerPoint, so we'll go quite quickly. So I'm going to tell you something amazing about this. I'm going to tell you a couple of things just to, maybe we can just review it, and it won't be that I have to tell it to you. Everybody understands pretty much Daniel 2. By the way, the interpretation of Daniel 2 that you hear in evangelistic meetings is not unique to Adventists. It is basic Christianity. Does everybody understand that? This is important what I'm telling you. If you look at the Antonicene Fathers, many of you are likely aware there's a big encyclopedia-sized set of books called the Antonicene Fathers. That means before the Council of Nicaea 325 AD. So between the time the disciples and the Bible writers died and the first Christian council, that's the Antonicene Fathers. The Antonicene Fathers wrote about Daniel 2 and those metals being Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Does everybody understand that? It's not something we came up with out of thin air. This is basic Christianity. And I'm just going to show you here. Remember that that, uh, that that talks about that Babylon, the head of gold, Medo-Persia, the chest and arms of silver, Greece, the thighs of bronze, Rome, the legs of iron, and then divided Europe, the feet of iron and clay. Now, something amazing happened. And I want to give you this little insight just before we get into it. When you study apocalyptic prophecy in the Bible, Daniel 2 is always first because it is foundational. All of the other prophecies are helped to be interpreted by that one. So... Daniel 7, we can see this one. I do want to read one thing from Daniel 2. And that one is about, I think it's verses 34 and 35. But let's look at it. I have my Bible marked with a little marker so I can find it pretty quickly. It's actually 44 and 45. Daniel 2, 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, verse 45 is amazing. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, broken pieces, the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. This is, uh, could be a comfort to all of us. It's certain and it's sure. So that's pretty amazing. So 
We're going to look now at Daniel 7, and I have many of the texts on the screen, so you'll be able to see them. Daniel 7, 2. Daniel says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And then he said, four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. And you'll remember what they looked like, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the nondescript beast. Now, they're, they're not in a, they're in a diagonal order here. The lion is first, then the bear, then the leopard, then the nondescript beast. But they also represented kingdoms, as you remember. So interestingly enough, they parallel the head of gold as the lion, chest and arms of silver, the bear, the leopard, Greece, and so on. And then this nondescript one. Now, this is very, very interesting because the ten horns are equivalent to the ten toes. So I'm going to give you a little illustration now. Uh, our son Andrew and I have done quite a bit of hiking on the Appalachian Trail. We've done only about 450 miles. That's only about 20% of it. But I'll just tell you something interesting. People tell me, aren't you scared when you're way out there in the mountains? And I say, what is there to be scared of? We know all the animals that we're likely to encounter. I'm more afraid of crazy people than our animals. I'm serious about it. So, I mean, there's been stories recently about encounters with crazy people on the, inter on the Appalachian Trail, as you might know. At any rate, how many horns do most animals with horns have? Only two. So how many did this one have? Ten. So he's looking at it because it's kind of unusual. And then something amazing happened. A little horn came up out of the others. Now I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give you the identifying characteristics or the evidence for the conclusion. But instead of being like a pastor and show you at the end, I'm going to be like an attorney and tell you in the opening statement what this is, what I intend to prove. And what I intend to show you is that the characteristics of the little horn of Daniel 7 represents the papacy. Okay, we're going to look at this because it's not just out of thin air. I'm going to show you the evidence for it, you can see. So first of all, we're going to review the clues by looking at the ones that are given to the angel by the angel. So the first one is the location. It arose out of the fourth beast. It came up among the ten horns of the divisions of the Roman Empire into Western Europe, into which the civil or pagan Roman Empire was divided. Question, did the Roman papal Rome originate out of the old Roman Empire? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, another one, the time of the rise. It appeared after the other ten horns, that is, after the breakup of the Roman Empire during the 6th century A.D. Further, it would rise after three of the horns or the kings had been uprooted. Did papal Rome arise after the 5th century? Answer is yes. Really interesting. The nature of the little horn. By the way, something very interesting. I have a book called Jesus is My Judge that was written by Leslie Harding that has 200 identifying points of the Antichrist. But I'm going to tell you something as an attorney. I'm only going to show you about 10 of them because the more evidence you need to prove a point, the weaker the argument. If you have 10 good ones, do you understand? So that's what we're going to do. So another one, the nature of the little horn, it was different or diverse from the other horns. And though it was little at first, it became greater than his fellows. These are verses 7, 8, 20, and 24 of Daniel 7. The little horn was different. It would speak against the most high and persecute the saints. The difference was it would be both political and religious in power. By the way, many of you here probably know something about farming. How much land is a quarter section of property? A quarter section is? 160 acres. That's it, because a full section is 640. Isn't that true? You understand. So the, the papacy, the Vatican, the Holy See's land mass is 109 acres, less than a quarter section of land. And yet the, the emperor from that power was given the royal treatment in America this week and is still getting it. Am I telling you the truth about that? It's true. Okay. Different. And I'll tell you a little bit more about the difference in just a moment. Was papal Rome different than the other kingdoms that emerged in the Roman Empire? Obviously, yes. Another one is rise to power. It put down three kings or pluck them up by the roots. By the way, remember in the fourth chapter of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a big tree that had the animals of the earth come underneath it and birds came into it. And it was sawed down and the band was put around it. If you cut down most deciduous trees, what will happen the next spring? Little roots will come up, little shoots will come up. It doesn't happen very often with an well, evergreen tree, but most deciduous trees do that. The interesting thing about it is Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, you remember, 
and Daniel interpreted it for him, which was quite interesting. But it says, you're going to be restored to your kingdom because the roots are still in the ground. But these three empires had their roots plucked up. When Kathy and I are out weeding in our yard or taking out trees we don't like, Kathy always says, get it up by the roots because we don't want it to come back. You get the idea. So it's interesting. Were three of the kingdoms that emerged from the Roman Empire eliminated? Yes. And I'm going to show you who they are. You're, you'll see all these. I don't need to read them all. I'll just go around kind of clockwise here. The Vandals, the, the Suevi, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Franks, and so on. So I'm going to show you what they are. Seven of them have modern counterparts, like the Suevi, the Portuguese, the Visigoths, the Spanish. But the ones that are no longer part of Europe are the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals because they are actually extinct. They were plucked up by the roots. Very, very interesting. Another one is the attitude toward God. The little horn would speak great things against the Most High. What does it mean to speak great words against the Most High? It is generally understood among Bible scholars that speaking against the Most High is equivalent to taking on the prerogatives of God and or blaspheming his name. So can you think of anything that the papacy does that takes on the prerogatives of God? Forgive sins, I absolve you. The Pope did one this week. And that was he made a saint of someone who was an American missionary. You guys remember? His statue, by the way, is in the, in the U.S. Congress uh, building, the Capitol. Now, this is interesting because somebody asked me this. Mean, what does it mean to make somebody a saint? Well, that means they're in heaven, and you can pray to them now. So is this taking on the prerogative of God? You just gave him immortality. Another interesting thing is that next year is supposed to be the year of mercy in the Roman Catholic Church. I subscribe to our Sunday visitor, and the most recent one I got talks about the year of mercy. And guess how you get mercy? You can buy an indulgence. They still sell indulgences. The 95 Thesis nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, October 31, 1517. All of those were about what? Sale of indulgences. You know, Tetzel from the, had been sent there by the Pope into Germany to sell indulgences. This is incredible. Still doing it. Attitude toward God's people. The little horn was perse would persecute or wear out the saints of the Most High, verses 21 and 25. According to the angel's interpretation of Daniel, this power would persecute God's people. Those whom papal Rome considered heretical faced civil punishment. History records that, what's the next word? Millions were put to death under this religio-political system. They forced the states that they dominated to kill people by the millions. Did Rome persecute the saints? Well, this is real interesting because recently, I think it was Benedict that said in a public speech, you're accusing us of killing 40 million people. That's wrong. It was only 26 million. I mean, this is crazy. Attitude toward God's law. The little horn would attempt to or think to change times and laws. It would view God's laws needing changes and would attempt to make changes in that law by its own authority. Did Papal Rome try to change God's law? I, I, I have a presentation, I won't have time to give it here, on Sunday chatter, the things that are happening in the Roman world. On, uh, maybe I'll show you two or three of them tomorrow. But the biggest deal about this is, does anybody know who the most famous of all the Roman Catholic theologians is? Uh, to save your guessing, it's Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas wrote a five-volume work called Summa Theologica. In volume three, the middle volume, he actually tells in there, this is, you have to read that to become a priest. And it's very interesting. He tells in there that uh, the church changed the day, not Jesus and the disciples. Aquinas says that. It's pretty amazing. So Sunday is one of those based on custom, tradition, and the command of the church. Another one, the length of time was permitted to rule. The little horn was to rule for a time and times and half a time. Again, this is not complicated. A time, one year or 360 days in prophecy. Times is two years, 720 days. Half a time, half a year, 180 days. Add them up and you get 1,260 days. This harmonizes with Revelation 13, where this same period is spoken of as 42 months. 42 months times 30 days, again, is 1,260 days. And in Revelation 12, where the time is actually recorded as... 1260 days or prophetic years. Now, did the papal Rome dominate Europe from 538 to 1798? What happened in 1798? One of Napoleon's generals, Berthier, entered the Vatican and took Pope Pius VI captive and he died in prison, as you know. 
People thought the papacy is history, never going to happen again. But the Bible says in Revelation 13, the deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled after the king of China. No, against the beast. Very, very interesting stuff. So now we're going to Revelation, and there's two beasts in Revelation 13. Very interesting. The one of them is called the sea beast. The other one is the land beast. And one of them starts out as looking like a leopard. Now, it, this is Revelation 13, now starting with verse 2. Rises out of the composite beast with characteristics of a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Now, does a leopard and a bear and a lion remind you of anything we just studied about five minutes ago? What is it? Daniel chapter 7. But these are given in reverse order. Remember there it's a lion, a bear, and a leopard. Why are they given in reverse order? Because John is looking back and Daniel was looking forward. It's really simple. Same powers, same interesting, everything. But the beast has seven heads and ten horns with crowns on the horns. Bless, let me go down through it again. Blaspheme, his name is on his head. He has a throne of great authority, received a deadly wound and lived. The whole world marveled and followed the beast. Worldwide influence. Very, very interesting. Receives worship. Speaks great things and blasphemies, dominates for a period of 42 months, makes war or persecutes the saints. Now, there are more signs or clues. Are there more signs or clues? Sure. Like 666, for example. I have a whole sermon on 666. There's no question that it points to the papacy. But it's very interesting. More signs. But it, is this sufficient to see that Revelation 13, the first beast, and the little horn of Daniel 7 are talking about the same power? You can understand that. Okay, and the papacy. Now we're going to look at the rise out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. He spoke as a dragon. This is Revelation 13, 11, the second beast. Again, the biblical clues give unmistakable evidence of the beast with horns like a lamb. I'll tell you right now, this is the best evidence. I wrote a whole chapter in my book, Sunday's Coming, The United States of Prophecy. The evidence is very clear for anybody who studies that this beast represents the United States of America. Now here, I'm going to show you what the evidence is. It would arise about the time when the first beast of the papacy is wounded. When was the papacy wounded? 1798. So when was the United States coming to power? We're going to show you that in just a minute. Yet unlike the first beast of Revelation 13 and the beast of Daniel 7, it comes up out of the earth, not out of the sea. It has two horns like a lamb. It speaks like a dragon. It has worldwide influence. And then going on, it has authority like the first beast. It supports the first beast. It encourages worship of the first beast. It performs great signs, becomes a persecuting power, and it causes many to receive the mark of the beast. So we'll look at these very carefully. We're going to go through them really fast because I want to show you the current event stuff, and that's coming up in just a minute. We should look for a country that's rising to power around 1798, the time when the papacy received this deadly wound. The pilgrims landed in the New World in the early 1600s. The various settlements known as the colonies began to bond together during what we call the colonial period. But in 1776, the colonies unified to, point, uh, to the point that a declaration of independence was drawn up. 1787, the Constitution was ratified. 1789, the Bill of Rights was formulated. And in 1791, the Bill of Rights was adopted. So is that the right time? Ellen White notes this in Great Controversy 440. What nation of the new world in, was in 1798 rising into power, giving promise of strength and greatness, attracting the attention of the world? The application of the symbol admits of no question. One nation, only one, meets the specification of this prophecy. It points unmistakably to the United States of America. Now the location is also interesting. The other beasts or kingdoms would, in the prophetic lineup arose from the sea, which we have seen from Revelation 17 and verse 15 represents peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. All of the other nations came to power amidst the peoples of the earth by conquering them. Only one place on earth was underdeveloped as far as the rest of the world was concerned, the North American continent. People came by the millions, and still they want to come today by the millions. There can be no question that the United States fits the second clue. Now I'm going to show you one thing else. It has two horns like a lamb. Early on, I showed you a picture of a buffalo. Have any of you been around the American bison very often? I can give you a clue. They look gentle, but don't try to pet them. Everybody understand that? They actually have free range in the Matanuska River Valley of Alaska. And some of the people that drive up there, I've been to camp meeting in Alaska twice, and people have told me these stories. When you come up on a buffalo, and he's laying in the road, don't nudge him. He won't like it. 
Do you understand? One of our, it was in the newspaper, a guy sent me a picture of it. There was this buffalo, he finally got up and was stretching himself and so on, the guy nudged him with the car and he leaped off the road and whirled around and smashed right into the side of that guy's car and just wrecked the car. Because he is big and powerful. He has horns like a lamb, but he is big like a, you know, a big beast. By the way, most of you are likely aware that one of the most prolific animals on the American continent when Lewis and Clark went west from St. Louis was the bison. They were in the prairies in the Midwest by the millions. There are only 500,000 today and they're growing. They're in you know, different places where they're being protected and so on. But it's very interesting because I want to show you something. We're about the third line down here. The Bible says that uh, it doesn't call the beast lamb-like. It says that his horns are lamb-like. Lamb-like describes the horns, not the beast. And please understand there's a difference. Ellen White makes 17 references to this in her writings, and she always says the horns are lamb-like, not the beast. There's a great difference in meaning. The beast grows up to be big and powerful, but it has lamb-like horns, maybe a buffalo, which some have pictured would be more like the beast which he saw. What do the two horns represent then? I believe they quite logically represent the gentle characteristics of republicanism. This doesn't, this doesn't mean like Democrat and Republican. Republicanism here means government by the people. And Protestantism, which means a nation without a despotic king and a church without an authoritarian pope. The bottom line here is that the new nation would have civil and religious liberty. Now, probably everybody knows what this picture is about, but I want to share something with you that you will probably not be aware of. The Statue of Liberty is a robed female figure in New York Harbor. It is Libertatus, the Roman goddess, who bears a torch which lights the way to freedom. A tablet evoking the law, which is inscribed in her one hand, is the Declaration of Independence with a date on it, July 4, 1776. A broken chain lies at her feet. The statue is an icon of freedom, and the United States was a welcoming sight to immigrants arriving from abroad. Now, many of you probably are aware that Emma Lazarus wrote a poem about the Statue of Liberty called The New Colossus. So I'm going to read just one stanza. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, she cries with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuge of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, the tempest-tossed, to me. And then she says, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Now that was the Statue of Liberty. Now, some of you are likely aware that something else happened in America, and that was the great civil war that killed 600,000 Americans, and every one of them were shot by a fellow American. Have you ever visited Gettysburg, Pennsylvania? This is incredible to see, because on one battle there, the southern and northern forces met by accident in the fields of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, a little town, still a little town. And so they had to fight one another. In three days, July 1, 2, and 3 of 1863, 38,000 men were killed on one field, all shot by fellow Americans. And so it was felt that we should do something to honor those dear people. So President Lincoln took a train car in November and went up to Gettysburg and gave a two-minute speech by the way, he was followed, followed by, he followed Everett, Edward Everett, who spoke for two hours and was supposed to be the best ever, uh, orator in America in those days. There's probably not a person here that knows a word he said. But Abraham Lincoln's two minutes, we, some of us have memorized in school. But he, I'm just going to not quote the whole thing for you, but just three sentences. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we're engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. And he concluded his remarks with this amazing statement. We're here today, highly resolved that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, 
not the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, November 19, 1863. Now this is amazing because that's what this means. If you ever visit the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., when you walk up the steps and you stand there looking at Abe on the big throne, you know, the big chair that he's sitting in, look to your left and there the Gettysburg Address is carved in marble. It's there for you to read. Very, very interesting. Now you understand that people fought for freedom and for liberties. So it comes, becomes very powerful. Revelation says it speaks like a dragon. The United States is the only remaining superpower today. No country on the earth has the political or military muscle of the United States. as worldwide influence. Well, with the demise of the former Soviet Union, the United States leads the world. There can be no doubt that the United States does have worldwide influence, but in the future, as America, this is from Sixth Testimonies, page 18, as America, the land of religious liberty, shall unite with the papacy, enforcing conscience and compelling men to honor the false Sabbath, the people of every country on the globe will be led to follow her example. There's another one, exercises all the authority of the first beast. These are things that will come into play, as you know. The United States supports the first beast, the papacy. During Ronald Reagan's presidency, we established full diplomatic relations with the central government of the Roman Catholic Church. By the way, now there are 180 nations of earth. More than three-fourths of all of the sovereign nations on this earth have full diplomatic relations with the Vatican, including all 24 Islamic republics. Encourages worship of the first beast. Perform great signs. These are, this is something that will happen in the future, of course. It's a persecuting power, will become a persecuting power. Now, I'm going to show you something now that you probably are very much aware of, but Round County, Kentucky Court Clerk Kim Davis refused to grant marriage licenses to same-sex couples based on her religious convictions that marriage between, is between one man and one woman. Do you agree with her? I do. Now, the interesting thing about it is a federal judge, David Bunning, ruled that Miss Davis was in contempt of court and ordered her to be put in jail until she agreed to follow the law of the land. She spent six days in jail, as you're likely aware. The five members of the U.S. Supreme Court that voted in favor of the same-sex marriage have directly opposed anyone who wants to uphold the Bible and Christian principles of marriage. Now, if the Supreme Court says that a Sunday law is the law of the land and you don't do it, what are you? You're in contempt of court. Where can you go? To jail. Just think about it. We're already exercising that same unusual powers today. It causes many to receive the mark of the beast. Now, here's just a brief summary, and then we're getting into current event stuff. This is a, a summary of the prophetic picture. Each succeeding prophecy reviews and adds the details to, it, to the one before. For example, Daniel 2, there's four world empires, then division. Jesus sets up his kingdom when the stone comes. Is everybody clear about that? So that Daniel 7, four world empires, ten horns or kingdoms come out of it. Then there's a little horn, the papacy. Judgment of Christ's kingdom is established. So what does Revelation 13 add? Let me back up to that one. There's four empires. The papacy is wounded. The United States comes to power, supports the papacy. The wound heals, and all the world marvels and follows the beast. Do you get the picture? It's just one builds right on the other. Very interesting. So what is so historic about, unprecedented about the Pope Francis' visit to the United States? Here's the deal. The Pope has already been entertained at the White House before. This is the third Pope to be entertained at the White House. Uh, Benedict is here with uh, President George W. Bush, as you know. But since that time, something interesting happened. It's not just historic that the Pope is coming to America. It's historic because the Pope is speaking to Congress. Do you understand? This is extremely significant. By the way, you can print off the text of his speech, which I have a copy of here in my briefcase, he doesn't mention Sunday in the speech, but he alludes nine times to his recent encyclical, which talks about Sunday. In other words, read this. So the Obamas go to meet him. The Obamas greet him at the White House. He travels around Washington and New York in the Pope Mobile, which is a Jeep, uh, specially equipped Jeep Pope Mobile. And this is interesting also. He doesn't ride in one of those armor-plated Chevy Suburbans, the black Suburbans that all the Secret Service and the President. He rides in this little Fiat. to give the impression that he's not a Jesuit. Did you hear what I just said? I'm going to show you something in just a minute. So here he is speaking to Congress. And by the way, in this picture, right behind him is Joe Biden, Vice President, and uh, 
John Boehner. Both are Roman Catholics. By the way, most of you are aware, likely, that John Boehner announced that he's going to be resigning from Congress very soon. The interesting thing is, he was in tears most of the day when the president, when the pope was there, because he was so emotionally overwhelmed by the fact that what he had engineered was actually taking place. Did you guys see him wiping the tears from his eyes over and over again? Very interesting. Now, reminiscent of the pope coming to speak at the balcony of St. Peter's, here's a picture of the pope from the balcony at the speaker's house looking out over the thousands of people in the mall in Washington, D.C. Very, very interesting. So people have spoken at the, popes have spoken at the United Nations before, but I'm, I'm going to use a southern expression right now. I'm fixing to show you guys something you've never seen before. Here is the Pope coming to the United Nations today. Something interesting, the United Nations General Assembly recently voted on Thursday, September 10, to allow the Vatican flag to be flown at the UN headquarters and all the UN offices around the world as a permanent observer. So the flag of the Vatican, listen carefully, is now flying at the United Nations. This has never, ever happened before. But when the Pope went there today, it was in place. So this is it. The Vatican uh, flag is flying for the first time at the United Nations. This is from ABC News Today. Raised without fanfare or ceremony, fanfare or ceremony before the Pope arrived to address the General Assembly today. So I'm going to show you something about the, the papal flag. That's a picture of a flat copy of it. Can you see what it has on it? It has the triple crown and the keys to the kingdom. Now this is flying now at the United Nations. And at, from the Vatican website, it says the uh, papal tiara formed by the three crowns symbolized the triple power of the Pope, father of kings, governor of the world, and vicar of Christ. And then, of course, this is the actual triple crown that's in the Vatican. And it has also said by the Vatican, the Pope is crowned with a triple crown as king of heaven and of earth and of the lower regions. So who is Pope Francis? A lot of people have no clue who Pope Francis is. Pope Francis was only a local priest for six years, and once he had took his Jesuit vows, was raised to be the Archbishop of Buenos Aires right away without ever being a bishop. He was groomed for the position that he has. Now, this is kind of interesting. We'll talk about it. The news, the first Jesuit pope brings new concerns, new style. And then interesting, why did he call himself Francis? Well, most people would like you to think it's because of Francis Assisi, the guy who pledged poverty and was kind to everybody. But our Sunday Visitor is a weekly Roman Catholic newspaper that I've been receiving for many years. And I, I get it because I want to know what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church from them. Do you understand? I'm sure that my postmaster must think that, does the Catholic live there or an Adventist? Because I get this Adventist Review and the Sunday Visitor both every week. But anyway... In the Sunday Visitor, March 24, 2013, right after he took the name Francis, this is what the Sunday Visitor said, the Roman Catholic newspaper. By the way, it is the largest weekly Roman Catholic paper in America. It serves, you know, 70 million people. His choice of name, Francis, points to a desire to emulate two great saints of the church. St. Francis Xavier, who was a Jesuit, founder of the Jesuits, and one of the founders, and Francis of Assisi. Francis Xavier, one of the founders of the Society of Jesus of the Jesuits. In 1973, Pope Francis became a master of novices at the Jesuit seminary in San Miguel, Argentina. Later that same year, he was elected superior of the Jesuit province of Argentina. Now, here's what the Washington Post said about him being a Jesuit. One cannot separate the new pope from his Jesuit spiritual formation. Bergoglio, that was his name when he was a cardinal, or that Francis, has made the full 30-day version of the spiritual exercises at least twice in his life and has repeated the shorter eight-day version every year since he entered the Society of Jesus. Now, I'm going to show you, Ellen White only talks about the Jesuits on two pages in the Great Controversy, but I'm going to show you what they are. She says the first triumphs of the Reformation passed. Rome summoned new forces. Remember, there was never, ever a Jesuit before the Reformation. You may have Dominicans, Franciscans, and you know, Benedictines, and so on, other orders, but not Jesuits. They were created as a counter-Reformation to do away with the Reformation, which is very interesting. 
She says, at this time, the order of the Jesuits was created the most cruel, unscrupulous, and powerful of all the champions of popery, cut off from earthly ties and human interests, dead to the claims of natural affection, reason and conscience, holy silence. They knew no rule, no tie, but that of their order, and no duty but to extend its power. There was no crime too great for them to commit, no deception too base for them to practice, no disguise too difficult for them to assume. Vowed to perpetual poverty and humility, it was their studied aim to secure wealth and power and to be devoted to the overthrow of Protestantism and the reestablishment of the papal supremacy. So in 1534, Ignatius of Loyola and six other men, including St. Francis Xavier, after whom the Pope took his name, and Pierre Lefebvre gathered and professed vows of poverty, chastity, and later obedience, including a special vow of obedience to the Pope. I brought a book with me in, to, in the desk tonight. This book was written by Malachi Martin, who wrote the book Keys of This Blood. He, for many years, was a Jesuit himself and wrote the book called The Jesuits. So I'm just going to read you one or two sentences from it just to get a little picture here. Please understand that it is not my idea or the Adventist Church's idea that the Jesuits are sinister and unruly people. Because, listen... Periodically, this is from page 33 of the book, The Jesuits, by Malachi Martin. Periodically, in their more than 400-year existence, the Jesuits were expelled and, and banned from various countries. France, Germany, Austria, England, Belgium, Mexico, Sweden, Switzerland, all expelled the Jesuits for their sinister ways. Do you understand? Now listen. So synonymous had the name Jesuit become with papal authority that their expulsion was always a clear signal that the governments of those countries were determined to eliminate the force, and, uh, eliminate the jurisdiction and authority of the Pope. Then his two lines later, they always returned. In early 19th century America, Protestant opposition, hatred to Jesuits was pithically expressed. The Jesuits will bring Roman rule to the Union. That is the Union of the United States. There's more there I can tell you about their disguises and all of that, which is in that book. So, interestingly enough, to look at the great controversy. This is page 570. If we desire to understand the determined cruelty of Satan manifest for hundreds of years, not among those who never heard of God, but in the very heart and through the extent of Christendom, we have only to look at the history of Romanism. Through this mammoth system of deception, the prince of evil achieves his purpose of bringing dishonor to God and wretchedness to man. You understand what wretchedness is? Pope John Paul II made a visit before he passed away to Mexico. And in a public speech, he criticized Seventh-day Adventists and other uh, Protestants for proselytizing in Mexico among our poor, ignorant peasants. Those were his exact words. So my question for the Pope was, who kept them in poverty and ignorance all these years? Do you understand? This is pretty amazing stuff. So now I'll show you pictures of two popes that are in the presidency. The one is on the left is Pope Francis, who is now in America, the Jesuit Pope. The one on the right is Benedict. And he, before becoming Pope, was for 24 years the director of the Office of the Inquisition in the Vatican. These are the two people there that are serving. So notice now something interesting. Most of you are likely not aware of what I'm going to show you next, but it's very, very interesting to me. The Miraculous Transformation of Pope Francis. This is by John L. Arthur, a Roman Catholic author. He wrote the book, The Francis Miracle, Inside the Transformation of the Pope and the Church. He says there is clearly a difference in style and personality between the cardinal, who was Bergoglio in Argentina, and the pope. The cardinal rarely appeared in public, almost never gave formal interviews. In fact, he says it's hard to find a photograph of a beaming Bergoglio taken before his election. The Pope believes that he experienced a miracle on the night of his election, a mystical experience. And even his sister, Maria Elena Bergoglio, the Pope's only surviving sibling, said jokingly, I don't recognize this guy. So that's what the Pope used to look like, and this is what he looks like today. Almost two different people. So he wrote this, praise be to, to you, to God, Ludato C, which is his latest encyclical. And I'm going to show you just one thing about it. It asserts that the way to global complex society goes about our industrial, financial, and resources allocation activities is reflective of selfishness and greed. And by the way, the encyclical is, in, is addressed to the Roman Catholics in the world, to every person living on the planet. Very interestingly, 
after spending pages and pages on the serious problems of the earth because of environmental pollution and the plight of the poor because of greed and materialism on the part of the rich, the Pope offers hope by making major changes in the management of earth and the resources. And notice what he says. By the way, all encyclicals, it's the uh, Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church as well, are all the paragraphs are numbered. So in this one, this is paragraph number 237. He notes in this paragraph, on Sunday, our participation in the Eucharist, or Mass, has special importance. Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath, is meant to be a day which heals our relationship with God, with ourselves, with others in the world. So the day of rest centered on the Eucharist, or the Mass, sheds light on the whole week, motivates us to greater concern for nature and the poor, which were the problems. If we start keeping Sunday, that's going to be much better. Three times he mentioned Sunday in the encyclical. So he's now gathering groups of supporters for the encyclical. This is a group of marchers. Many face one planet because we have a common home, as the Pope announced in Congress. So in, Pope Francis invited a group of 60 mayors of the largest cities around the world to come to a climate agreement in the Vatican. So he's calling civil leaders together to support his encyclical. So here's the news. Mayors from around the world declared Tuesday, this is July 22 this year, that climate change is real, man-made, and must be stopped as a matter of moral imperative. Gathering at the Vatican to announce new measures to fight global warming and bask in Pope Francis' ecological star power. The Vatican invited the 60 mayors to a two-day conference to keep up pressure on the world leaders ahead of the UN climate negotiations in Paris later this year. The meeting also aimed to promote France's environmental encyclical. One by one, the mayors lined up to sign the final declaration. Very interesting. By the way, the Pope is so popular that he has more Twitter accounts than any person on the earth, including Oprah Winfrey or any rock star that you can name. Do you believe this is true? 20 million. This is on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, Man of the Earth Time magazine on Masonic Times. Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp the hands of the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome, trampling on the rights of conscience. So you're saying in your mind, you're telling me all the stuff the Pope has, but I thought the Protestants were supposed to do something first. They have. It's already been done. So I'm just going to show you very quickly. You guys remember Tony Palmer? Most of you have seen Tony Palmer, now deceased bringing a video on his smartphone of Pope saying, I need your prayers, all of that. Shortly after that, Tony Palmer took Kenneth Copeland and several of the great charismatic leaders over to the Vatican to meet with the Pope. By the way, most of you recognize Joel Osteen, megachurch pastor, 72,000 members of his Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. The church is so big, they, their church is the former home of the Houston Rockets. I mean, it's a basketball arena, huge place. So. This is interesting. He took a group of 14 other religious and political leaders from America to meet the Pope on June 5 of this past year. Osteen said it was a great honor to represent the pastors of America in the meeting with the pontiff. The second largest church in America is headed up by Rick Warren of Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church, you understand. He says he has 40,000 40, adult members at Saddleback Community Church in Orange County, California. Here he is in the Vatican meeting the Pope. Now, if this wasn't enough, this is just from yesterday. Rick Warren is having prayer with Vice President Biden, his wife Jill, and their daughter. On the way to Mass in St. Patrick's, there's two St. Patrick's, one in New York and one in Washington, D.C., there. Rick Warren is in town because tomorrow he's going to be speaking at the Roman Catholic Mass for the families in Philadelphia. Rick Warren. And, of course, the Bidens had already met the Pope. Already preparations are advancing and movements are in progress, which will result in making an image to the beast. Events will be brought about by Earth's, in the Earth's history that will fulfill the predictions of the prophecies for these last days. Some people in the past thought that we were goofy and paranoid, to say it in a nice way. But with these things happening now, nobody's going to say that. Because 100 years ago, I'm going to show you something interesting. I'll just go through these real quickly. Notice this. Once shunned, papal meetings with American presidents is now the norm. Few relationships in U.S. politics, political history, have changed more over time than between the presidents and the popes. Once avoided, meetings with popes are now obligatory for American presidents. It's a vivid illustration of how much the church and the United States have changed over the past two centuries. 
Well, I'm just going to tell you that's enough for that one. Here's one from Time Magazine, the current edition. What it, today's the 25th, isn't it? This is Time Magazine, September 28th, the current issue. The New Roman Empire. Here's another one from the same one. It's an odd fact of history that the world's youngest empire, the United States, established diplomatic relations with the oldest, the Holy See, only a little over 30 years ago under Ronald Reagan. Back then, many considered it inappropriate for the champion of church-state separation, that would be the U.S., to engage directly with the world's most far-reaching theocracy. This one is today, right off the internet of the website of Christianity Today, posted today. The headline, From Antichrist to Brother in Christ, How Protestant Pastors View the Pope. A survey of a thousand Protestant pastors revealed that within a few centuries, the Pope has gone from Antichrist to Brother in Christ for a lot of Protestants. Pretty amazing. This is a book I called The Liberal Illusion. I have this book in my own library. I bought it just this whole book for this one page. It's printed originally in French in 1866, so that's like 150 years ago, roughly. Printed, reprinted, distributed in English in 205 by Angelus Press, which is a conservative Catholic organization. The book promotes the church and the pope as superior to the state and to be served by the state. When it comes to times, when the time comes for truth to prevail and for the social edifice to be rebuilt according to the eternal rules, whether it be tomorrow or centuries from now, Catholics will organize all things as they would for themselves. They will set up the laws of life. They will impose, impose religious observance of Sunday on behalf of society as a whole and for its own good. The Liberal Illusion, page 92 and 93. I'm just going to show you this one picture that might be interesting. This is the U.S. Supreme Court as it is currently configured. There are six Roman Catholics and three Jewish people. There are no Protestants at all. These people will decide whether the Sunday law is legal or constitutional. Now, this is interesting also. The Roman Catholic justices are all smart people, good educations, and so on. They're all, a number of them are younger than me by a good bit, and they all have lifetime tenure. You understand what I'm talking about? As long as they want to live. Many of you saw Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the Pope's speech, and she's so old and decrepit she hardly can even look up, but she's still serving on the bench because she won't quit. Very interestingly enough, Two of the Roman Catholics and all three of the Jewish people voted in favor of same-sex marriage. So the, the season of distress, this is the bad news part, and we just have one slide on bad news. The season of distress before God's people will call for a faith that will not falter. His children must make it manifest that he is the only object of their worship and that no consideration, even, not even that of life itself, can induce them to make the least concession to false worship. To the loyal heart, the commandments, commands of sinful, finite men will sink into insignificance beside the word of the eternal God. Truth will be obeyed, though the result be imprisonment or exile or death. So what are we going to do in all this stuff? This is my last slide. My suggestion is, if you're not already doing it, have regular family worship in your home. My wife Kathy and I have an hour family worship every day before breakfast. We never miss breakfast. Kathy and I have been married for 48 years. I think we've missed breakfast three times in 48 years. So what I'm telling you is we always have family worship, which means we study at least three chapters in the Bible. We read one of the morning watch books and we have prayer, which is a long list. People in our church, our leaders in our church, you know, all there's a big long list. We even pray for the people that sent us Christmas cards last year. Kathy puts them all in order and puts, you know, we're in the R's now because we're near the end of the year. So if you send us a Christmas card, we'll pray for you. Anyway, <laughs> spend time every day in God's Word. Set aside time every day for prayer. And tomorrow, by the way, in the afternoon, I'm going to talk to you about Daniel was thrown to the lions then in his 80s. Why was he willing to do it? How could you ever develop a faith that strong? I'm going to tell you seven reasons tomorrow afternoon how you can develop that kind of faith. Be financially faithful with God. I'm going to give you a little clue about tomorrow, Vespers. Some people will have to flee to the mountains. Some people will be put in prison. Some people will be executed. Some, some, some. But everybody is going to face one thing before Jesus comes back. You know what it is? Everybody who leaves this earth alive will have to go through a time when you cannot buy or sell. Is this true? You can talk about it. We'll talk about it tomorrow afternoon. But this is incredible. How do you prepare for that time? Be financially faithful. You've learned to trust God with your money now. Seek the will of God and follow it. Support God's church, warts and all. 
Are there problems in the Adventist church? Of course. Wouldn't the devil see to that? If you were the devil, where would you be working the hardest? The other people, you understand. So that means, I told somebody before the meeting tonight, have you guys read, is it Hebrews 10, 25, where it says, forsake you not the assembling of yourselves together, so much the more as you see the day approaching. If we're near the end of time, where should you guys be on prayer meeting night? In prayer meeting. And if it's not lively, when Kathy and I first moved to the North Knoxville Church, I'll just tell you this real quickly. Kathy said to me on the first Wednesday we were there, she said, don't you think we ought to go to prayer meeting? I said, no, I don't think we ought to go at all. We're not going to learn anything. We know everything. And besides, they're probably going through the Gospel of John verse by verse, and everybody's telling their opinion about that. And I've been through it many times. Kathy said, I still think we should go. We went. There were two people there, and they were studying the book of John going verse by verse, just like I said. We have 25 or 30 people coming to church on Sabbath, typically. We've had 30 people at prayer meeting. Almost the whole church is coming to prayer meeting now for reasons that we want to grow spiritually, we want to learn what the Bible says, and we want to support one another in fellowship. We've gone through the Doug Batchelor series, the you know, Millennium of Prophecy with Doug Batchelor and filling out the lessons. We've been through the It Is Written Bible studies, the 25, filling out the, and going through it. Everybody there's taking a turn to do it. We're studying to ground our hearts in the truth, my friends. I think that's what people ought to be doing. If it's not happening at church, make it happen. Get there and make sure you can do it. Okay, pray for the Holy Spirit's power in your life. Transform, to, for God to transform us, to fit us for the kingdom, to equip us to better share the gospel and prepare us for the days that are ahead. Well, thank you for your kind attention. I'm sorry I've gone so late here, but the others won't be this long. They'll be better, though. <laughs> well, I want to pray for you guys. I'm not the closing prayer. Somebody else has the closing. Who has the closing? Oh, Joel. Wonderful. But I think it's wonderful that we have, we can have, he's going to have the benefit. Maybe you can do both, Joel. We're going to ask God to, to First of all, I'm going to ask you while he's come up here, would you like to commit yourself to, to go down this list and be faithful as a Christian and Seventh-day Adventist? I'm going to ask you to raise your hands for that. Come on over, Joel, to the microphone here. And uh, <clears throat> I call Elder Tompkins Joel because he's, he's almost my age. I'm catching up with you, believe it or not. Are you close to 82? Well, no. I've had my 70th birthday, though. Yeah. In fact, I had to file today to start getting advancements mandatory from my 403B because I can't keep it there any longer without taking mandatory withdrawals. Pray for these dear people and give us the Lord's benediction. Yes, how about standing? With bowed heads, Father, we bow our heads before you. We remember what Jesus said. Watch. Be aware of what's going on around you. Watch the signs. And tonight, this is what we did. And we've been watching it through this week. Dear Father, we want to be faithful to Jesus. Regardless of what happens. We want to know Him, and we want Him to know us so that He can invite us into the kingdom. Bless everyone here tonight. Send us home with sober thoughts about what is happening around us. We thank you for Jesus' concern for each of us. In Christ's name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.